making time for us. And uh, pray God be kind to you and comfort you and encourage you and refresh you in your time here. Uh, this semester we are studying uh, the book of Galatians. It's just a little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some friends in South Galatia, a church or a number of churches he helped start. He's concerned for them. They have uh, sort of deviated from the course. They've gotten off track a bit. Uh, he has shared with them uh, multiple times probably uh, what Jesus has done and uh, somehow they've forgotten or it's gotten a bit corrupted. And if you were here last week, or if you weren't, that's fine, I'll catch you up. Uh, we looked at a section where Paul recalls for them a meeting he had with another apostle, the Apostle Peter. You know, these guys work on the same team. It's a pretty small team of apostles. And how uh, Peter himself had gotten sidetracked and off course and had forgotten and corrupted the good news. And we talked about how the gospel, when it's centered... In us, it, it, it does some things. It sets us free. It sets us free from fear. We don't have to worry about what other people think. We don't have to perform for them. We have security. And that enables a beautiful, diverse, flourishing kind of community. But when we don't have that, when we forget God's love for us, then we are cast back into having to perform. And our lives are characterized by fear. We care what other people think of us. And insecurity. And that means our community shrinks and it suffers, and we have less to give. And uh, we need to know that if it's possible that someone like the Apostle Paul can get off center, can forget what the gospel's like, can lose the clarity of what it's all about, and so can we. And so Paul writes a letter like Galatians, where his whole goal is to make it very, very clear, and then to do it again, and then to do it again. And that's what we do in RUF. I'm pretty convinced that even when we know the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we often forget it or it becomes less than clear. Other things sneak in and influence us. And so, like Paul, we're going to come back to it over and over. And where we're going today in, in Galatians 2 is about as clear as it gets. So, I'm excited about it. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. I'm going to read uh, these words here in front of me. You can read those words up there in front of you. Let's go. 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if we, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We, too, were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And do not nullify the grace of God, if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Great Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you be kind to uh, show us great things in your words. Uh, show us especially the, the love and work of Jesus on our behalf. and Press it into reality in our hearts uh, that we might know the goodness and the clarity of the gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm aware by the snickering that the text up there probably doesn't match what I just read. Um, so listen to me. Um, it's okay. So uh, 
what's going to be really great about this text is Paul's going to make his same point over and over and over. So uh, even if you're a little thrown off by what's up there, you'll get the point. All right, how many of you have seen uh, the movie Thor Ragnarok? Show of hands. Yeah, so there's a little bit of celebration because it's so stinking fun. It's just stink. It's a fun movie. And uh, I'll catch you up if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, you're lame. That's not, that's not true. We're busy. I can't say that. I, can't, I don't get to see anything because I have kids. So, uh, but it's a fun movie. You should make time for it. Anyway, uh, the short of it is Thor finds himself on a different planet against his will, thrown in sort of a battle royale. Okay? He's, he's not in control of himself. You know, he's, someone's enslaved him, basically. And he's being forced to fight in like a gladiatorial-style battle. And... Uh, and everyone's excited about the person who's coming out. They're the champion. And, and the person that bursts through the door is the Hulk. And uh, this normally would strike fear in everyone's hearts, except for Thor knows Hulk. So he's like, yes! He begins to celebrate. Yes, he sees an old friend. We've worked together. We're old pals. This is great. Um, and, and so Thor tries to strike up a conversation and says, hey, Banner. Because it's Bruce Banner, the Hulk. If you don't know that, we should talk later. But who's <laughs> an alumni Penn State, remember? Anyway, um, so uh, he tries to strike up a conversation. Hey, Banner. And, and Hulk replies, no Banner, just Hulk. And, uh, and then he uh, gears up for battle, springs into action, and Thor says, what, what are you doing? It's me. And, and the first blows are exchanged, and Thor's forced to defend himself. Thor's still a little incredulous and still being generally happy that he sees someone he knows and generally optimistic they're going to work through this says, Banner, we're friends. This is crazy. I don't want to hurt you. And uh, Hulk charges and you know, punches and uh, throws his hammers again. Eventually, uh, this is one of the funniest parts of the movie, Thor lays him waste with one huge hammer blow and then tries to calm him. Calm him down like, like, like the Black Widow did. Uh, it's really, really pretty funny. Uh, hey, big guy, the sun's getting low. No one's going to hurt you. He's like gently holding his hand. And the Hulk grabs him and smashes him into the ground repeatedly, throws him across the arena. Anyway, at this point, Thor, realizing he's not going to calm him down or, or reason with him in any way, says, literally, quote, All right, screw it. And he grabs his hammer and he says this, I know you're in there, Banner. I'll get you out. And as he approaches with a hammer. And uh, I don't know why that strikes me as so funny. Or why it strikes me as a, uh, as a fitting parallel to what's going on here. But I think that's sort of what's going on here, actually. Um, Paul is approaching Peter, an old friend. They're teammates on a very small, special team. And, and Peter, an old friend and a fellow apostle, has not been quite himself. He's gone off the rails. And, uh, and, and Paul is taking up his gospel hammer saying, I'll get you out. I'm going to get you. I'll get you out. And uh, the next six verses, the ones we just read, is Paul hammering away. Not with personal attacks, not with deep philosophical arguments, but just fundamental truths over and over. And when you read this text uh, carefully, you'll, you'll see uh, that he strikes one particular blow over and over. comes up four times. It's the word justify or justification. Paul is simply raising the question and answering it, how are we made right? That's what justification means. It means to be righteous or to be declared righteous. And Paul is simply asking Peter and us, how are we made right? 
And uh, we're going to talk about that tonight. And what we're going to see is that Jesus, when we trust him, Jesus makes us right. That's the simplest outline you'll ever get from me. Jesus, when we trust him, he makes us right. And uh, this is how we're going to talk about it. We're wrong, fully forgiven, absolutely accepted, and there's a revolutionary union. And outlines are out there if you forgot, but uh, they'll, they'll almost always be there. Okay, so we start by the fact, having to admit the fact, that we're wrong. And this is where Paul begins in verse 15 and 16. This is something that's very hard for us to admit. It's something that supposedly Peter, Paul, those to whom he was writing, they wouldn't have as much trouble. But uh, he raises here the specter, the reality that that we have a problem with sin. And uh, in verses 15 through 16, Paul lays out a very simple argument. You can look at it in detail if you want. But he simply says, first of all, a person is not justified by works. A person. Any person. You pick a person, any person, that person is not justified, not made right by his own efforts. Not anyone. And then secondly, same verse, verse 16, second part. So we, you and me, Peter, we believed in Christ. That we were justified by faith in Christ and not by works. That's what his argument. Personally, we have come to know that I cannot fix myself by my own labors. And then he finishes up in verse 16 at the end, verse C, by saying, no one will be justified. Not, not, not a person. It's a universal truth. Generally speaking, personally speaking, universally speaking, we're all wrong. That's his argument here. And we're all wrong for a number of reasons, but one of them is we're all going about it the wrong way. He can make an appeal to his pedigree. He sort of alludes to it here. He makes a big deal about it elsewhere. He can say, I'm Jewish. They're Gentiles. They're sinners. I'm Jewish. Eh, it's not enough. And in general, what we, almost all of us do, and this is the main point of this text here in 15 and 16, all of us default to performance. We expect that God expects us to perform rightly, to earn his favor. So over and over, he says it again, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, not by your performance. And uh, that's the way we're all wired to think that we will be right. And it's the wrong way. Uh, not too long ago, Chris Pratt made a pretty famous, very brief speech. You may have seen it. He won some award at the MTV uh, Music Awards. It was called the Generation Award. I think that just means like we want some guy we really like to get up and stand to deliver a speech. I don't really know what a Generation Award is. Um, but uh, his speech, if you've seen it, and if you haven't, nine things. He makes a nine-point speech in three minutes. Guy's really gifted. And uh, anyway, his speech was much ballyhooed. Uh, lots of publicity. Uh, because Chris Pratt's extremely likable. Anyone not like Chris Pratt? It's like not liking a puppy, sort of, you know? Um, and then, uh, so he's got this wonderful sense of humor. He's very humble. But also, much ballyhooed because he just made the very simple, direct, confident assertion that God is real. God is real. And uh, actually received much applause, both during the speech and afterwards. But that's not what interests me, actually. What interests me was his ninth point. Anyone remember his ninth point? His ninth point, fitting with Paul, he simply says, nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you that you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. <laughs> that's we put it. You are imperfect. And he goes on to say, if you're willing to accept that, you'll have grace. 
I would tweak his language a little bit, but man, he is on to something. It's very hard to accept that we're wrong, that we're not perfect. Because deep down, we're convinced that this is the way God set up the world, that we are supposed to perform for him, and if we are good at everything else we do, then we should be able to be good for him too in a way that earns his favor. We think we can do it. We think we're doing pretty well. Also, we hate to admit we're wrong, and we hate to ask for help outside of ourselves because it kills our pride, and so we constantly double down on our own performance and our own desire to perform for him. And it's the wrong way. It's the wrong way, and no one gets right that way. We're all wrong. And uh, going back to Chris Pratt's paraphrase, we're wrong, but if we're willing to accept it, we'll have grace. Grace is a gift, a gift. And these are his words, not mine. A gift paid for with someone else's blood. I mean, Chris is very clearly pointing to the, to the death of Jesus here. And, and here he lines up perfectly with Paul, who says, we're all wrong, bad news, good news, three times, same verses, bad news. You can't save yourself by your works. Good news, you can be justified through faith. He says it three times in the same verse, verse 16. Justified through faith in Christ. So we've got to unpack that gift. That's the gift being given to us. Justification, being declared right through faith. That's being handed to us. Let's unpack it, see what it entails. And uh, what it entails, first of all, is full forgiveness. Full forgiveness. So justification means to be right, to be declared right. It is a legal declaration, first of all, that you are not guilty. Okay? That you're not guilty. You've been acquitted. The legal Any pre-law folks here? Surprised. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Anyway, um, so generally speaking, we're wired to think that God expects us to work, and if we work hard enough, in general, because we work hard, He will owe us His favor. The general idea is if I work hard enough, I'm good enough, then He owes me. I indebt Him to me by my good behavior. I've worked hard for you. Now pay up, God. And if you don't think you think that, then just think when you get bad things in life, how you immediately go to, what have I done wrong to deserve this? That's the flip side of the wrong kind of thinking. The reality is altogether different. The reality is we are his creatures. He owns us. And we owe him absolute allegiance. And we're called to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, all those wonderful faculties he equipped you with, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what he expects of us. And he gives us the law in the Bible to make it clear what that looks like. But uh, we don't do it. We don't do it. And uh, our failure to do that adds up to a debt, a tremendous debt. It's a failure. Uh, the, the Bible uses the word sin. Paul uses it here twice. That is breaking his law. Like, I know this is his rule. I'm going to do it anyway. Jump over the line. Or him calling us to a standard of loving others, of showing justice and mercy, and failing to achieve it. Maybe by apathy, maybe just by not being able to do it. And uh, whether it's a debt, you think of it as debt, or a transgression, it's clear that we don't measure up. And the reality is, because we're convinced that this is about earning and performing, we're actually pretty good at rigging the system that we think we're doing good. What we do is we, we take the scope of what God asked us to do, love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and somehow we manage to shrink that down to a Sunday morning for an hour and feel pretty good about ourselves. Or Thursday night. 
or love your neighbor as yourself. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll shrink down the expectation. Neighbor is people like me or people that I like. Okay, I can't get away with that. Okay, how about this? How about I surround myself by people that I like? Therefore, they're the only people I see. Therefore, they're my only neighbors. Shrink the scope. And excuse from the bottom our bad behavior, i.e., oh, I didn't really do what I was supposed to. But if it hadn't been for them, if they hadn't come in right then and told me that, I didn't really react to my roommate the way I was supposed to. But she should know by now. We excuse our misbehavior by, with excuses. That's what we do. And so we can feel pretty good about ourselves. And uh, <laughs> to be frank, it's, it's complete BS. And it's what it is. We're rigging the game in our favor to, to hide our great debt. And uh, the Arcade Fire, any Arcade Fire fans, man, they were great. And then they sort of like haven't done anything in the last couple of years. But uh, there's a song about 10 years ago called City With No Children In It. Listen to these lyrics. You never trust a millionaire quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, you're right. I never trust a millionaire quoting the Sermon on the Mount. I used to think I was not like them, but I'm beginning to have my doubts my doubts about it. You know, what he's saying is, you look at some people and the way they act, and you think, that's a hypocrite. I'm not like them. You feel good by comparison. I am not like that clear hypocrite. And we can go on feeling pretty good about ourselves, despite our debt, because I'm better than other people. And then he writes, when you're hiding underground, the rain can't get you wet. But do you think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? I have my doubt about it. And here he's pointing out, We have a penchant to think that a little bit of extra work, a little bit of moral extra credit, service project here, act of kindness there, thank you card, a kind word, is enough to pay the interest on our debt. And we don't realize how great our debt is. We we don't. And like he says, I have my doubt about it. And uh, what we have instead offered us in Scripture uh, is, is, is full forgiveness. Um, we get to face reality, not, not deny our debt, not to live in shadows of it, running away from it, but face that I'm an insurmountable debt, um, that I have a criminal record, if you want to look at it that way, but I can be completely forgiven. And, and what we have in justification is the legal acquittal of all the charges, all the debt removed, God declaring to me, I'm not guilty. That's what happens when he justifies a person. Uh, now, you should ask, how does that happen? Because it could happen. Like, legally, it does happen. Someone who may have been guilty, is, they stand up in the judgment and say, for any number of reasons, I find you not guilty. Or if you have a tremendous debt, someone may forgive your debt, and congratulations, you're free from debt. That changes your life. But the debt doesn't go away, does it? Someone still has to pay that debt, right? It, it, it still exists. The only way you can be free is if somebody else pays your debt. And the question is, who in the world would do that? And who could do that? Who has the resource to do that? And who loves you enough to do that? And uh, the good news is that's Jesus. That God has the authority to forgive your debt. And Jesus has the record and the innocence to pay for it. And uh, that's what justification is about. That Jesus, the innocent one, on the cross, assumed all your debt. He, he suffered what you should have as a result of your crime and your debt. I know this is a terribly unpopular way of thinking nowadays, but it's just a universal truth. We know that our wrongs deserve to be righted and that the cost needs to be paid. 
uh, a fellow pastor uh, tells a story in one of his books. Uh, it's an old story, an ancient Chinese proverb. There was a town with a well in the center of town, and during uh, droughts, they would have to institute a, a ration system on the, on the well, enforcing strict rations. Anyone caught stealing water would be beaten. Everyone got water, but you couldn't steal it. Otherwise, other people would, would simply uh, perish. One day, the bailiff approaches the judge with news of yet another theft. And this is sort of common occurrence, and the judge says, Why do you look so sad? And the bailiff simply replies, You'll see. And outside, the judge sees his own mother, sick with a fever and a bucket of stolen water. And uh, this judge, being a, a compassionate, loving man, loves his mother. But he also knows that if he makes an exception for her, there will be lawlessness. There will be rioting. People will steal water. And as a result of that, other people will not get theirs and people will die. And so he knows he has to convict his own mother. So he sentences her to 40 lashes, the typical punishment. She's tied to a stake in the middle of town. And as she's being tied, he removes his own robes and embraces his mother and turns to the bailiff and says, Make sure all the blows fall on me. This is how God is able to freely forgive us. How a just God pays the penalty, the debt we incur, and yet sets us free. He has to incur the cost himself. And he chose to do so in the person of Jesus. God can do it. He has the authority. And he's loving enough to do it in the person of Jesus. Two quick things to consider if that's true. One, do you still think you can pay your own debt? Do you still think you can work it off? As Paul says in verse 21, if that's the case, then why in the world did Jesus have to live and die to begin with? But then secondly, if you, if you're a Christian, really let it sink in just how great full forgiveness is. That you're fully forgiven, completely forgiven, completely acquitted, not guilty forever in God's eyes. He's declared you not guilty. That, that sentence stands for you. Everything you've done is forgiven. Even that thing you don't want to think about or bring up to anyone ever, that, that would just kill you internally if you knew that people, that people knew you did this or had done that. Forgiven. It's all forgiven. That's the nature of his forgiveness. Everything fully forgiven. And uh, that's actually only half of it. The good news of justification is not just that he forgives our sins. That's part of the gift. But he has more to give. He has more to give. He uh, absolutely accepts us as well. Absolute acceptance is part of the deal. He doesn't just pay your debt. He makes a deposit in your account. You're not merely forgiven and acquitted. You're declared to be righteous. Uh, Paul doesn't go into it in great detail here, but he does in almost every other letter. And I'll just give you one verse, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes, To the one who, this is really important, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let me sum it up. Paul's saying, If you've realized that you trying to work for it only ends with you being wrong, and you take shelter by faith in the person of Jesus, you get his record. God grants his perfect record of righteousness to you. Let me tell you why this is really important. 
It's really easy to hear someone say, you're forgiven, and then to go out and say, great, I'm back to innocence, I'm back to ground zero. Now I have to earn their favor, I have to stay in their good graces. If I mess up again, I'm right back where I was. That's not the way it works with God. You are forgiven and absolutely accepted by him. You have the credited righteousness of Jesus given to you by faith in him. And I realize that this is so foreign to our thinking, you may not literally understand the words I'm saying. So I'll give you an example. We don't like to take credit for other people's work. Here's an example. I have four kids. Some of y'all know that, right? One of them's three. (laughs) The three-year-old is the reason I didn't finish this sermon last week, actually. This is the remnant of last week's sermon. I couldn't do because I had to take care of Simon. Uh, Simon's awesome. He is energetic, really smart, really funny. He, like, never has an off day, basically. He's always, like, 100% full bore, ready to conquer the world. Which means you don't ever want to take him anywhere, especially, like, to a store. And so uh, what's happened over the last few months is my wife, Luda, has begun to do something that you might think is crazy. Maybe, I don't know, maybe your parents did this. But when she has to go grocery shopping, which is, like, a daily occurrence in our family, um, every other day at least, she will come to the parking lot and then hand a long list over to my older children, the 8 and 10-year-old, and send them inside. They're 8 and 10. Now, maybe this happened, but maybe your list said, like, loaf of bread, gallon of milk. And sometimes our list says that. But if you know my wife, that list is more complicated. (laughs) Shallots. What is a shallot? I mean, I I don't know how to do her list half the time. Uh, Yogurt. Not non-fat. Real yogurt. Like, like that's that's her. You know, it's just (laughs) buttermilk. Buttermilk. So, um, so my kids have to like navigate this impossible shopping list, but they're used to it. Um, the real question is, you know, what happens when it's time to check out, right? Because here they're going to come, not with just a few things, but like a cart full of groceries and strange things in there, nevertheless. And uh, you would expect the cash, the person working the register, to say, "Your parents here?" And maybe they do, and like, get in the car. Um, and then you would expect maybe. That stores have some kind of policy against this. But what I found is no stores have policies about this kind of thing. They don't because all they care about, really, in the end is can you pay for it? That's all they care about. And so we load off the groceries around the thing and, they, and we hand them our credit card. It's our credit card. And what happens next is pretty magical, frankly. My kids who collectively, the two of them in their lifetime has earned, they probably earned about $40 in their lifetime from raking leaves and whatever I've asked them to do. They're able to purchase $75 worth of groceries because the cashier does not see their, their puny efforts, their lack of resources. Instead, if my kids wanted to, they could buy $15,000 worth of groceries. See, you know, pastoral salary, which is not particularly great, but 15 years of credit history, I have a pretty good credit limit. My kids could buy $15,000 worth of groceries. In other words, my kids have, because they have my card, all my credit. They have all my credit when they go to that store. And therefore, that cashier treats them like they would treat me. And that's what we have in Jesus. That Jesus, having covered our sins, gives us his righteousness. So when the Father sees us, he sees us with the righteousness of Jesus. We are absolutely accepted in him. And that's wonderful news, friends. Um... Because there's going to be times that you're going to be waylaid by your guilt and your shame. When you hear the voices around you, what what that sorority said, or what that professor said, or what your father said all the time growing up. 
And you're going to think, I'm not enough. But you are absolutely accepted and deeply loved by the Father if you're in Jesus. And uh, this is a gift that's given to us, and it's all yours, all yours by faith. Paul brings this up four different times as well, that you receive this gift of justification by faith. And it's easy to think this is just mental assent, like, oh, yeah, I believe that, sort of like I believe water is like hydrogen and oxygen. No, no, this is more like believing Jesus like believing I need water to live. It is a personal commitment. It is an investment in yourself into him. And uh, I'll just quote an old English writer who put it this way. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. That's hardcore stuff, right? Upon another's Upon a life I've not lived, and upon a death I did not die. Jesus' life, Jesus' death. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. And yet, I want to tell you, friends, wherever you may be in your faith, struggling to believe that this is true, not sure at all what you think about this, I think it's perfectly reasonable. Trust is not a blind leap in the dark. It's reasonable. It's reasonable when you actually get to know the person. This is what we do every day, right? We figure out who's trustworthy and who's not. And then you trust them. If Jesus did what the scriptures say he did, lived a perfect life and willingly died to cover your sins and granted you this great gift, he's the most trustworthy person ever. Trusting him is the most reasonable thing you can do. It's a personal, reasonable commitment in him. And for just a minute, I want to show you what happens when you, when you put your faith in him, receive this gift, and invest yourself in it. What happens is a revolutionary union occurs. Paul spends actually the most time in the verses on this point. I'm going to run through it really quickly. Paul makes the the argument here that when you trust in Jesus, you've been united to him. He says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, Paul wasn't actually on the tree crucified with him, but because he's spiritually vitally connected, Paul's saying, when Jesus died, my sins died with him. My failures died with him. All my old way of life has, has gone away. It went into the tomb with him and it never came out again. I've been vitally, vitally connected to him in a way that whatever is his is mine and whatever is mine is his. For instance, he gets my sin, I get his righteousness. But I also get, since Jesus loves me enough to live for me and die for me, I get his ongoing presence. I get his, he's still concerned for me. He's united to me. And what happens next in verses 17 to 21 Sort of a personal revolution. Someone brings up the question. Paul's answering an objection in verse 17. Hey, you believe that Jesus loves you and forgives you everything and you're perfectly accepted, not based on your works. Does that mean you can do literally whatever you want? Like, you can just sin all you want, right? And, and Paul says, no, absolutely not, actually. No, I don't have the right to just sin and blame Jesus for it. What Paul does here is say, you know what? If I sin as a Christian, you know whose fault it is? It's not Jesus, it's mine. What Paul here is doing is being honest about sin. You see, when you, when you think you have to earn it and perform, you naturally make excuses for your sin all the time, right? I didn't really say that. I didn't really, mean, I didn't really look at her that way. I didn't really do that. It was a bad day. No, Paul says, no, you know what? When I sin as a Christian, you know whose fault it is? It's all mine. It's all my fault. I'm able to own it. 
because it doesn't find me anymore. I don't have to make excuses for it. I can be honest. Man, you can be honest. That's a revolution. Uh, secondly, he brings up this prospect that everybody is working. Everyone's working to earn. Keep the law, earn favor. And Paul says in verse 19, I died to that. That way is dead to me. The whole world is working hard to prove that they're good enough. And I'm dead to that. In fact, that way of life will kill you. So, uh, you know what I've decided to do instead? Since Jesus died for me, I don't have to earn it. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to stop living for me. Because to work to earn his favor is really about him. It's about me. That's about me. That way of living is about me. I'm going to work really hard for you, God, so you'll bless me. Actually, how about this? You lived and died for me, so I'm going to live for you. Out of the enjoyment I have for what you've done for me. That is a revolutionary difference, friends. It is. It's just radically different. And then I want to read this verse to you and just ask a question real quick. Verse 20. He writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you hear any fear in that verse? Any fear? Any fear of condemnation? God's anger at me is going to crush me. You hear that at all? None. None. Paul knows that this is the way God is, freely forgiving, declaring me righteous by trusting in Jesus. Instead of being afraid of being condemned, living in fear of what others think, no, I've got confidence. I have a God in my corner who loves me enough to live and die for me. My life is, is marked by radical security. We're all looking for security. We all are. The world's a hard place. I'm going to stick my toe in this and just say that the fact that we're talking about the need for safe spaces all the time on campus is just a reality that the world's a hard place. It's a hard place. There are hard truths. There are hard lies. There are hard statements. There are hard realities inside of us. We're looking for a safe space. I'm not saying you can't have one. I'm a little doubtful that it actually is one anywhere in the world. But there is one that you can have. And it's only, the only place that it can go where it will be completely forever safe is deep in you. And I'm convinced, friends, that if you understand what Paul is talking about with justification, and, and, you, and you take it in by faith and let it go deep into you, I am wrong, I cannot fix myself, but he is willing to make me right at the cost of his own life, and I am forever forgiven and absolutely accepted. You take that truth deep down into you, and you will have inside of you an unassailable safe place. An unassailable safe place inside of you where you can have the kind of confidence and security that Paul has. They don't think I'm good enough? I have a God that died for me. My father still thinks I'm a loser. I have a God and a person of Jesus who lived and died for me. An unassailable safe place, friends, it's beautiful. I want you to have that. I want to tell a story real quick and then we're done. I've shared the story two or three times and I think it's one of the funniest, best stories about justification I can share. There's a comedian named Mike Berbiglia. Mike Rabiglio starts this particular point of his uh, stand-up routine by talking about his problems waking up in the morning. He's a stand-up comedian, so he's like, it's good, you know, I, I don't have to work till late at night, but I'll call the desk every morning and say, I need a wake-up call at 7, 7, 10, 9.30, and 1.30 in the afternoon. He just can't wake up. And he goes on to explain, like, what happens every night is as I go to sleep, another human being takes over my body. And his name is Sleepy Carl. And S- Sleepy Carl is a, is a terrible employee, but a pretty great dude. And uh, every morning, when I'm trying to wake up, Sleepy Carl will say, Hey, you don't want to get up. 
why don't you stay here and dream about riding a Ferris wheel into pizza? And he'll think in his sleepy state, that's a great idea, Carl. You get a raise. And he goes on to say this was a terrible problem in college. He had to go to 8 a.m. classes. And in one particular case, his senior year, he had to take a class, an 8 o'clock in the morning class, on computers and networking. So he says he went to class the very first day, sat in class, and uh, as Mike Rabiglia says, it was way over my head. He was talking about computers. And so the next morning, um, <laughs> it's 8 o'clock, and Sleepy Carl's not having it. Why would you go to class when you can stay here and dream about skiing and your skis or French toast sticks? That's a great idea, Carl. And so he never goes to class again the entire semester. The whole semester he doesn't go to class until the, the, the class before the final exam. He goes to the class before the final exam to figure out what's on the final exam. And as he sits into his seat and settles in, the person beside him leans over and says, you think we'll get our exams back today? And he says, it took him a while, but slowly the fear and the regret began to wash over him. Oh, no. And he immediately jumped up and bolted out and finally made his way to the computer science department where he eventually ran into the professor. And he said, hello, because I didn't know his name because <laughs> he never went to class. <laughs> uh, and he explained, I've been in your class and I misread the syllabus and I missed the test and I don't know what to happen. And he says it's very, it was very degrading uh, personally because the professor wouldn't even look at him. The professor simply looked at the ground and said, you'll just get the worst grade. Uh, and he's like, I, I don't know what that means. Do I get a zero? And the professor, still looking at the ground, says, you'll get the grade of whoever got the worst grade got. And it dawned on him, that's great news. Because that's what I, got, that's what I would have gotten anyway. I would have gotten the worst grade anyway. And as it turns out, the person who got the worst grade passed the test. So I passed the test. And passed the class. And everyone erupts in applause. And Mike Rabiglia says, and I'm proud to be an American. Anyway. (laughs) um, uh, Yeah. I I tell that story because there's something beautiful and really fun in knowing in some way someone else's score counts for us and it works out well. And, and what we have uh, in the Doctrine of Justification, friends, is this reality. We have a test, and no matter if you sleep through it or not, you're not prepared. You may think you're prepared, but you're going to fail. We all fail. We don't love God with our whole hearts. We don't love others as ourselves. But we don't get the worst score. We get the perfect score. Someone takes the test for us, and he crushed it. Perfect score. And uh, we don't have a professor that won't look us in the eyes. Uh, we, have, we have a teacher that loves us enough to take the score for us, the test for us and crush it, and then to take our feelings upon himself. And he does all that, all that, because he loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to just look on that phrase, friends. I don't usually do this, but if you were to say, it'd be good for me to memorize a verse, maybe this one. Do you understand the gospel enough to know that it's all about you being wrong, but Jesus making you right? And are you convinced that what Jesus has done was for you, for you personally? He loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, I want it to be yours. I want you to have that truth deep down in a way that revolutionizes your life. All right, let's pray. 
And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great kindness toward us, what you've done in taking our failures and the cost of them, but also giving us your great uh, reward. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to live out of that great confidence.